I'm Bernard Fraser, and you're listening to The Essence of Cool. Her father is iconic Bowie T-Rex producer Tony Visconti, and her mother, famed Those Were the Days singer Mary Hopkin. But those facts have not given Jessica Lee Morgan a free ride to fame for her own music. In fact, she found praise for her five delicious albums, The Old Fashioned Way, through a grueling concert schedule and endless hard work. On this episode, Jessica tells us how her music career got started, about working with her dad on the Holy Holy Tours, writing and producing a new album for her mother, and we examine her own gorgeous releases from her 2010 debut, I Am Not, to her latest, the slick and beautifully performed electropop album, Change the Record. We also delve into her work as a practitioner of the Alexander Technique and her essence of cool picks, the Blow Monkeys and cult icon Robin Hitchcock. Fasten your seatbelts and let's get started. Jessica Lee Morgan, welcome to The Essence of Cool. Thank you. Good to be here. It's a real treat for me, as I said off air. I'm really excited about having a chat with you. There's so many things I want to ask you. but Oh, blimey. <laughs> but let me kick off with something that's uh, uh, relatively new. In fact, you think you posted either last night or today that you just completed training in the Alexander Technique. And I saw mm. your, your dad congratulating you too this morning, by the way. That was very cool. <laughs> Tell me about the Alexander Technique and why it's important. Wow. Well, the Alexander Technique, people either go, oh, that's amazing. I love that stuff. Or what the heck is that? So um, the Alexander Technique is, uh, it's an educational process. Uh, We work one-to-one with a pupil and teacher. And it's about identifying harmful habits that we all have in our posture, in our thinking, in our movement, uh, that can cause lots of problems, usual things being things like back pain or repetitive strain injury. It can affect singers and performers, musicians, everybody really. Um, And when you learn it, you can just basically make the best use of yourself. Like we sometimes we refer to it as like an advanced driving course (laughs) for the body. (laughs) Right. So it's important to me because I see a lot of musicians who suffer from uh, physical and mental um, issues in performing you know they do themselves damage or or they can't cope with the touring because it's physically demanding and mentally demanding so uh when i wanted to help musicians um primarily with singing that's what i wanted to start doing i realized that this was the best basis for it all really so so here i am freshly qualified which is quite exciting you the other personal connection is that you were experiencing back pain correct and that you used that to help yourself Yes, initially um, I had some lower back pain, which is fairly common, um, and I went to see the doctor just to check I was okay, and he said, no, there's nothing physically wrong, no kidney pain, no damage, no injury. So he gave me a leaflet with some back exercises on, which is the route that most people go. Um, And I had already heard about the Alexander Technique. My dad had trained in America as a teacher, and then uh, I used to work in like public health, helping people make uh, the best use of themselves, you know, and speaking up for the services they had. So I had like a self-help conference and I invited an Alexander teacher along uh, to give a demonstration. So when the time came for me to to look after myself, I I went to him for lessons. Tim Kelton, his name is in Cardiff. And um, 
after a while, I got better mentally and physically. And then I thought, what's next? And he said, well, you could you could train to teach, but, you know, <laughs> if you want. So years later, I eventually got around to that. And uh, I, I don't regret it. I think it's a fantastic thing to do. Uh, once people know what it is, it's it can really change your life. But the first hurdle is getting people to understand what it is. <laughs> right. So now you're a certified trainer, and I'm assuming you're sort of going to hang up your plaque and be open to taking on clients? Yes, yeah, ideally. Um, I need to find somewhere to, to teach first. Um, I'm looking in London or Reading, but uh, I'm open to offers. I'd like to particularly, I, I thought I might like to teach in uh, music colleges. There's a lot of modern music colleges now um pop star school kind of thing and i really want these young people to feel good about themselves and to look after themselves you know there's so much horrible pressures in the music industry that uh, i really think they need the best tools and the best care to get through it and not be damaged is this something that you could effectively do online as well or has it got to be an in-person process um, online teaching was explored during the pandemic because that's all we had and our, right. our school uh, did some some of it online. Um, on the other hand, it's about gaining an experience which, because you're not always able to tell what you're doing, we call it faulty sensory perception. Um, if you work one-to-one with a teacher, we, we put our hands on pupils just very gently just to find out what you're doing uh, that you won't even know you're doing, like, you know, people lean back or lean forward, they're not even aware they're doing it, but it puts pressure on certain parts of their bodies. Um, so really, it's best to learn one-to-one. That's where, you know, that's okay. where the real work can happen. Yeah. I'm hoping there might be practitioners in Canada because I suffer from horrible neck and back pain. Primarily, oh. I'm a keyboard player. So oh, uh, yeah. the use, particularly the use of the right hand. So my entire right shoulder area gets cramped up very easily. So <laughs> I wouldn't mind trying yeah. this out. <laughs> That's common. There, uh, m- most likely there are teachers there. Yeah, definitely. There's probably um, uh, a Canadian uh, um organization for teachers i know there's amstat in in north america but there will be a canadian one as well right i'll, I'll find out for you i'll let you know <laughs> thank you thanks you've worked you worked and been surrounded by iconic artists so many iconic artists over the years not the <laughs> least of which are all the bowie alumni uh through holy holy and and um, other affiliations that your father has had who do you listen to for inspiration or just for enjoyment which artists? Oh, my goodness. Um, I'm not the world's best listener of music, but I think it's all stored carefully in my head. So, I mean, Bowie, uh, it's undoubtedly an influence on, on so many musicians. Um, right. So there's him. I love electronic music. So I, I love, uh, gosh, now I can't think of any. <laughs> Heaven <laughs> 17 was an influence. Oh, um, well. Gary Newman, people like that. Level 42, I love all that stuff. Um, the Blow Monkeys that we talk about. Uh, yeah. And then the uh, the usual suspects amongst the female uh, singers and songwriters, Joni Mitchell and Carole King um, uh, and all the others. In fact, I've got a show called Those Are The Days, which focuses on those wonderful women. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm influenced by all those. Basically good music, well sung, well written, with some thoughts and meaning. Uh, those are my influences, really. Okay. Okay. Interesting that uh, Heaven 17 counts among your influences when you've worked with Glenn, Gle- Glenn Gregory. Oh, yes. Well, I mean, he, it's that whole defining genre in the 80s. There was some powerful electronic music. 
yeah. it, I don't know if it was the analog gear or what, but it's just had real guts to it. And all the voices, these these guys with these huge baritone voices, yeah, so powerful and so exciting. Yeah. And my brother was a great influence on on my early music taste because he's three and three and a half years older. So, right. whatever he listened to, I listened to. Dead or Alive was another great favorite of ours. Oh, as well. great, a fantastic yes. voice, <laughs> <from> Pete Burns. <laughs> so yeah, that's my. I mean, electronic music really it really gets me going. That's my favorite. I think. Yeah. I have to say. <laughs> uh, I'm, as a synth pop artist, I'm with you there. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Rightly so. <laughs> I had mentioned in your in, in your introduction uh, that you're the, the daughter of the iconic Tony Visconti, who's produced some of my favorite albums of all time by you know Bowie, T-Rex, Sparks, Thin Lizzy, mm. and, of course, a legendary folk singer Mary Hopkin, who everyone around the world knows for those were <laughs> the days. <laughs> so it would seem... Kind of a no-brainer, pretty obvious that you would carve out uh, a career in music. Yet when you got into your adulthood, your your adult years, you didn't. You didn't start there. You started with a quote-unquote normal job. Tell me about that. (laughs) Um, I did have, I had normal jobs in my teens. I worked in a bar. I worked uh, in a garden centre. Those were great times. Um, and there's, it's difficult to rebel against parents in the music industry. So I, I got my degree. I took a while to get to the university, but I got my degree. My first was in English literature, and then I did a master's in social science research methods, free grand title. But I ended up working in housing and homelessness and um, what we call the health and social care uh, network, uh, particularly in Wales and Cardiff. So it was about, my job was about helping people speak up for the services they, they received. It was in a time where Tony Blair was in government. It was all new conversation. We're listening to people. I'm not sure how much of it actually got through, but it certainly helped people feel more in control of what they were doing and have a voice, which is something I'm definitely passionate about. Yeah. Um, so it did in, in, did inform my music and my arts, uh, but, I guess, yeah, it gave me a, a respect for people working nine to five in the real world, which is not the music industry. <laughs> right. But So what inspired you to finally look to music as a career? Um, I guess I'd always been doing it. I mean, I would have loved to have been discovered as a pop star, you know, my late teens. But uh, I've been steadily playing in, in covers bands, you know, paying my dues, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, cover bands, all that sort of thing, the odd session. Um and then finally, uh, the job I was doing in health and social care, the funding ran out as, as usual. And my partner, Christian, and I uh, finally decided to start our own music studio in Cardiff. And we tried to apply the same ethos, uh, helping people who wouldn't normally get access to a recording studio to, to come and have a sing and to feel better about themselves. And we did do that. Um, and then finally I had my own studio and it was only towards the end of having it <laughs> that I finally got to do my own album, um, which is usually the case. But I uh, I recorded my album, I Am Not, and then, um, yeah, finally got going, really. I thought, well, let's have a stab. So I'm very, I'm very late in terms of my own work, but I always felt a part of the music industry all my life, definitely. Are you still recording others at your studio? Uh, no, we've gone virtual, so really we only concentrate on our own stuff. Um, I mean, Cardiff was great, but it's it's such a uh, a gamble. It's hard work paying the bills, you know, because yeah. the people you want to work with haven't got much money. Um, so it's, yeah, it was difficult. But, um, yeah, we're just doing it for ourselves and our family now. Your first album, 2010's I Am Not, number one is a gorgeous album. 
Thank you. Um, it's very singer-songwriter with the, a little sprinkling of electro-pop, and mm-hmm. we'll talk about that in a sec. But I found a, a lot of Joni Mitchell influence in it. Yeah. Um, but the question is, what, what was the pressure like releasing the debut album by the daughter of Mary Hopkin and Tony Visconti? <laughs> Um, yeah, it's always, uh, I don't know, I I was used to that whole thing by the time I got the album out and my brother, my brother helped me with the electronic songs. So he got a co-production credit and very helpful, making it sound really nice and sparkly and clean. And my dad helped me with the more acoustic songs. Um, I said, you know, make me sound like a Carmen or, or, you know, some of your lovely string arrangements, things like that. So, so they did help immensely. It was going to be two kind of EPs, I think, at one point. So it was real varied, oh. which is which is me all over, really. Typical Gemini. I couldn't make up my mind, so I just right. bunged everything onto one album. Right. Um, and then my mum sings on it as well, and she we wrote a song together, which is on it. And um, so, yeah, I had all their help. And then, of course, any press I got I had to refer to those people. And um, it's always been a bit of a... It's a double-edged sword, really. It's great to be part of such a such a great musical family but also it's it's pressure to succeed i've never once been um humored by them i have to really pull my weight <laughs> and then um so yeah you've, you've got to mention them or or you know dwell in obscurity and then work much harder so it's like a shorthand really it's like hey look at me you might have heard of my parents and that never really goes away so it's i've never i've never mastered the whole thing i've got to say <laughs> But for the most part, have you come to terms with the fact that everybody's going to want to ask about Mary and Tony? Oh, yes. Yeah. And I am. I'm very I'm very proud of them. Like I say, I'm proud to be related to them. And it does make me who I am. So, you know, they've taught me about music. I've got their work ethics about music, you know, and their their attention to detail and all that. So I'm pleased that I've never, like I say, been humoured and I have to be good. People think... Oh, yeah, she's all right. She's, you know, just has to be the daughter. But but you have to be good. You can't be crap right. <laughs> because you've got those people to live up to. Right. Yeah. And was it during the recording of that particular album, was there greater pressure or less pressure because you were working with family? Um, More pressure, I think. Uh, like I said, you know, they coming from all sides, my brother, my mum and dad, they all said, no, this has to be right. It has to be good. It's got all of our names on it and it has to be as we all want it. You know, if I asked them to do something, they had to be happy with their contribution to it. Um, so it, like I say, it's great. They, I think they applied the same standards to me as they would to anybody else. Um, so, yeah, the pressure is is a lot, but I'm very grateful for it. Um because yeah, it makes it it makes it good. Well, I hope I hope it makes it good. Yeah. Well, it, it clearly made it good. Yeah, I just want to jump ahead eight years because you mm-hmm. did something really interesting, and in fact, it's something that uh, I don't know if you know Phil Thornley, um, who is um, oh, know the name. Produ- he produced uh, the Cure's pornography and Love Cats, and he oh, engineered uh, Duran Duran, Psychedelic Furs, on and on and on. Oh. Um, and I chatted with him um, a couple, well, about a month, and a half, month and a half ago, and he did something similar on one of his. He has a, a project called Astro Drive. He recorded an album, um, a lo- beautiful, beautiful album, and mm. then several years later, he re-recorded it in a much different vein. Mm. And you've done that. Uh, you took the first album, and you stripped it down, re-recorded it uh, under the name Reboot. Yeah. And 
what it did for me is it's it felt like there was such a great emphasis on your beautiful voice and and your mum's beautiful voice why was it important to revisit that album in that way um well there's many reasons i think uh we had started playing all those songs live me and chris um and they no longer the live renditions no longer represented the album right. um I, i've always started songs you know on guitar or piano very simply so that to me that's a mark of a, of a of a strong song is that you can play it just stripped down unplugged as we like to say mm-hmm. so um it got so that we were doing these live gigs and people go oh can i buy your album and what people expect then is to is to buy a cd of something that they've just heard so um uh i think also i was running out of the first pressing of cds so i thought i don't want to repress it because uh, i feel i've moved on so right. but i still like the song so i just thought well yeah just uh, reboot it so i've done it like um you know the whole concept the cd is wrapped in in paper and things like that it's done very much as a bootleg as if it was a live bootleg oh cool <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, so it's only a very limited run of like cdrs but but it was nice to um it's just nice to revisit songs isn't it because the songs become I mean, I hardly say they're world famous for me, but to me, they've become real, real staples, those songs. And, uh, you know, I still believe in them. So it was good to revisit them and to see if they stood up. I think they do. And it really gave them new personalities. Um, There's a really hauntingly beautiful cut off reboot. It's the stripped down version of I Want to Be Famous. I love I love the original version. Nice electropop uh, piece. Mm -hmm. But this had such a profound impact on me. It was it just became more poignant. Yeah. Tell me about the difference recording the electropop version back in 2010 and recording this beautiful stripped down version in 2018. <laughs> well, the original version is very much based on, I mean, it was really from the heart. There was a lot of frustration that I would work so hard on my music, uh, you know, and I had this ap- apparent advantage of the famous parents yeah. and everything. And yet still I was getting uh, turned down by record labels and I didn't feel like I was getting the help I needed or wanted uh, or thought I wanted at the time. So so the song very much came from that. You know, if you watch the video, there's me and my girl band friends, you know, and we're all pretending right. to sign a record deal and there's me there's me on the sofa with seeing into a hairbrush and things like that so again when it when we rebooted it uh i think it's partly chris's idea that i sing it in that kind of really kind of modern groany girl vocal way but actually it it worked i think the more you overdo a vocal what you think is overdone the the, the clearer it comes out it doesn't come out so overdone as you think it does but the video for the newer one is against me having a nervous right. breakdown <laughs> just very raw because again it was it is it's very painful that whole thing which i think i can't imagine there are any musicians right. who don't feel that way uh you know i'm working blood sweat and tears pouring my heart out and you don't get the recognition you feel you deserve it's uh, frustrating, isn't it? It's a massive yeah. ego thing. <laughs> but it's frustrating all the same. <laughs> but I really can't overstate how beautiful that rendition is. Your your voice really, really shines in oh, that. Thank you. Um, similarly, there's a duet that you do with your mom called Here It All Comes Again. And again, yeah. in the stripped down version, it's just that much more powerful and beautiful because the voices play such a prominent role. I mean, they play a prominent role in the original, but there's just more focus oh. in, the, in the stripped-down version. Oh, right. When, when you listen back to the final mix of that one, of the new version, what the first time, what were your thoughts? Um, 
It was much more how uh, I wrote it to start with. I had that, uh, you know, I was playing around with with dad-gad tunings on the guitar, right. like Joni Mitchell, and I came up with that that chord sequence. Uh, and then my mum wrote uh, the the melody and the lyrics over the top, and I wrote the harmonies. So it was much more, again, in the spirit of how I wrote the song. Uh, and it was it was my mum's favourite version as well. She wasn't too keen on what I'd asked my dad to do on arrangement wise. You know the, the mellotron flutes and things. Oh, okay. um, she she falls in love immediately with the, with the, like the initial version of something, um, and says that that's it. You know she doesn't matter about she doesn't worry about you know oh the recording's not quite crisp and clear enough. She just goes oh it's in the spirit. It's brilliant. So. So we're actually revisiting it yes yes again for our new album. Uh, there's an original demo I did on an Atari ST40 and a, um, a you know eight track recorder and all oh, okay. that C Lab. So um, so that's my 16 year old you know done when I was 16 demos. So we're revisiting that arrangement as well. So again, it's it's going to be a perennial. I don't you know recycling songs, but that's okay, isn't it? So, if you like the song. <laughs> that's no, that's wonderful. So we can expect a new version on on the new Mary Hopkin album then. Yes, yeah. I think she. Uh, I have to see what she sent me, but uh, I think she'll take more more of the lead vocal. Which said, "Oh no, you did you did the great lead vocal. I don't want to re-sing this, but I've twisted her arm, so we'll see. We might split the uh, split the difference. I don't know." <laughs> and what was her reaction to listening to the the reboot version the first time? Oh, I think she loves it. Yeah, I think she was much happier with it as well. Um, mm. It's much more what she had in mind. So, uh, but I think, you know, they all have their place, don't they, really? Different versions, horses for courses. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I want to talk about your latest record, Change the, Change the Record. Mm. Um, it just, it feels like a real departure for you. I mean, I know that you have sprinkled some electropop here and there throughout your career so far, but this one is solidly electropop synth pop. Um, it doesn't feel as singer songwriter, although no. still clearly Jessica Lee Morgan. What what was was there an overarching concept that you went into the recording of this album with? Uh, well, some of the songs are lockdown songs. When I had a Patreon account, I was kind of doodling around and just would stick things up, you know, in a raw mix. Uh, and it's a lot easier to, to record, um, you know, into a sequencer because, you know, you can just, it's a lot easier to edit. You don't have to set up microphones and all that. Yeah. So um, they came from that. Uh, some of the songs are definitely, you know, It's Okay and Hang On In There was very much about, you know, waiting for the, <laughs> for the lockdown to end. Um, and then it was back to the way that I recorded those, or wrote the first few songs on I Am Not, you know, the, right. the famous and... All those is very much uh, sequenced, which uh, is, I think, it's probably my favourite way of recording because mm -hmm. you can just chuck it all in. Um, you can change the tempo and the key. You can muck around with that, and then you just throw all the vocals straight on. Which I do the vocals pretty much before anything else, as long as I've got a chord sequence to, to sing to. Right. Um, so then I think in terms of vocal arrangements. So, like I say, my my early influence listening to to the you know top 40 on a Sunday in the UK was was it was all electropop you know it was my first love of music you know around the mid 80s so so that's that's what came out this time and it is is much more me than than the uh, um, singer songwritery acoustic stuff although I love that uh, I just love dancing and I love electronic music so yeah well, what's interesting <laughs> that they both come really naturally to you that they both feel authentic when you're doing the mm. singer-songwriter kind of Joni Mitchell, Mary Hopkins style stuff. It does feel you, but when you're doing the electropop, it feels equally you. 
Yeah, I guess it does. I don't know if it's uh, again a Gemini thing, but I'm quite adaptable. I, I love I love all kinds of music. I I always resent um, people pigeonholing artists like you have to be this or you have to be that, and they and they have these ridiculous subdivisions of genres. Oh, they were R and B, and now they're soul. It's like oh, for goodness sake, you've written a song, you sing the song. What does it matter? <laughs> yeah, it's just a song. Like I think I've written that. It's just a song. In fact, just a song came out of somebody coming up to me and said in a um, an open mic night said oh you can't sing covers especially ones by men i was like who cares it's a great song really <laughs> you tell me, tell me what i can sing and what i can't sing um so so yeah it's just uh, like i say i love music and you know some themes will express themselves better in one in one arrangement or another arrangement so uh, it just depends on on what comes out songs write themselves uh, yeah. i'm sure you find you know they just appear and they go this is the way I want to be heard. Yeah, so yeah. that's the way you go. <laughs> Gotta Get Through This is the lead track off the album, and it's a re- it really boldly announces this is what this album is about this time around, you know? Do you remember how that song came about? I think the idea came from um, being on tour uh, and thinking about the difference between how we <clears throat> how we like to appear on stage and uh, in our social media. You know, oh look at us, we're rock stars, and, and you're living the dream. But inside, you're kind of thinking, oh my god, I miss home, and I, I'm not looking after myself, and I feel really rough, and mm-hmm. you know, caught cold off, you know, the rest of the tour bus, and, yeah. <laughs> and there's a big difference between the, the swagger that we all really have to put on because we're entertainers and uh, and the reality of you know having cracks forming on the inside so that's yeah that's what that's about the second track if you want to believe it's got a really avant-garde feel to it the piano <laughs> the piano sequence on that is really really interesting <laughs> where did that was it inspired by a specific artist or song or where did that come from um i think i had again the pop star in mind uh and I think it, it probably came from um, thinking back. It came from like the met- kind of messages I get on f- on Facebook and things like that from fans. I'm amazed that I have <laughs> fans at all sometimes. But they write to me as if uh, you know, as if I am that kind of cool pop icon. And I think no, I'm just this person. You know, I've got my problems. I've got my issues. And and you you think I'm you think I'm amazing and it's ridiculous. And then people, and it's the fact that people can message you so instantly now. Yeah. It's difficult to, to explain that, you know, when, you know, there is a division without sounding too snobbish about it, but we can't be friends with everybody and we can't be confidants. You know, there's a chap who, who tells me all his terrible mental problems and I'm thinking, Oh God, Um. no, no, you need help. (laughs) Um, You know, (laughs) psychotherapy or, you know, antidepressants or something, not me for God's sake. I'm, you know, I'm just as screwed up as you are. So that's, (laughs) that's where that comes from. Uh, Yeah. It's ridiculous. You know, that we, and people of course do it to my parents. They think my parents are iconic musicians, which they are, but they're just, you know, they're just people like the rest of us, you know. Right. That must be difficult to manage, um, you know, having that very sort of public persona where you are truly the rock star, but then, you know, realizing that, you know, you're just a regular person inside, but that ease of access, uh, how do you manage that? How do you sort of keep people at bay? Uh, 
I try a combination of friendliness and brutal honesty. Like mm. <laughs> sometimes I post on Facebook, look, this is how it is. I think I posted once, look, if I don't answer your messages, it's because I don't want to. I mean, I don't know what to say. Um, people send my mother, of course, I manage my mother's accounts. Right. I'm effectively a manager, I guess. And people send her these, these outpourings of love and affection. They're like, I think you're amazing. I think you're beautiful. I think I'm thinking that's my, I don't know what to say, you know, and then it you know spills over in a tiny way to me and i just think thanks very much but you know i can't and the thing is if you answer because of the immediacy then you get into a conversation and you think i'm i'm lost here i don't know what to say i've got to put the barriers up which feels bad but i've i've had to grow tougher really because it's i don't know because you can end up down the rabbit hole like with this young man who, who keeps telling me that he's depressed and everything and we flip between, oh, I'm feeling wonderful, oh, I'm feeling suicidal, and I think this is this is not my job. My job is to sing. It's not to look after your mental illness. Right. You know? And having worked in those fields as well, it is, I could say with all honesty, it's, it, you just have to get the right help, mm. and you have to put it in the right direction. And and aiming at you know screwed up singer songwriters is the wrong direction. <laughs> we just put you in a song instead. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Did, did mum or dad ever give you? tips on managing fame um i guess not directly but yeah through through behavior like uh you know very occasionally some people you know knew where we lived and would turn up at the house asking for autographs it, we weren't exactly mobbed or anything but uh my mum was always very clear when i was growing up with her it was very clear about where the boundaries were um right. and again she used to you know she used to get mobbed at at uh, airports and concerts and things like that so she she's very defensive about her privacy, rightly so. Um, so, yeah, I've learned to be kind but also firm where the boundaries are because it's not, you know, if people approach me, they're not approaching just me, they're approaching my parents, really. Right. Uh, it's all kind of a package, so um, I, I have to be very careful about what I post on social media as well. It's just like there's the music, there's some friendly banter, and that's that's all you get, you know. Mm-hmm. You, you have to learn the boundaries because otherwise you just open yourself up to unrealistic expectations, so... Yeah. yeah, my dad the same, you know, he just gets, you know, my mum gets asked about the Beatles, my dad gets asked about Bowie, and um, and if they can't get an answer from them, they ask me instead. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a real, it's a juggle, but I think yeah. we've achieved, so it's okay, you know, it's all right. <laughs> and what was it like in the before times when you were having a, a regular job um, and people found out, you know, who mm-hmm. your parents were? Um, mostly it was okay. Uh I mean, I didn't broadcast it, but if I was in a job for a long time, they would, you know, find out. And they were, they were, they were fine about it. Um, but, you know, again, I was, I think, if it ever got too close for comfort, I was happy to deflect things, you know, politely but firmly. Mm. Uh, a couple of times I worked uh, in different jobs and I just thought, oh, that's a bit close for comfort. So I would have to just put up the barriers a bit, say, right. oh, you know, I'm here as a paid employee, not as, a, as the daughter of these people. So right. Right. most of the time it's been okay. There's um, a song on the new album called Comfort in Pain and definitely one of, if not my favourite track on the album, just absolutely gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the lyrics. Where did that come from?
they probably came from the job I did a job which was like a social worker for for uh, musicians through a music charity and it, I really got to see firsthand how people across a wide range of situations got to deal with their problems and some people would have tiny problems and um, well we'd think were tiny problems and and uh, and they'd let them destroy them uh, other people had huge problems but dealt with them really brilliantly um and then of course I, I got to know these people over a number of years so it was interesting to see how they dealt with them and I realized that that pain is a comfort sometimes and it's really hard to break out um from from your situation particularly I mean from my, my own experience depression um it's horrible, obviously, but also it's really scary to do anything about it. And you're not always ready to do it. You can't force someone to do something about it. it there has to be a time and a place. One of the, the gorgeous aspects of the song is that later on in the song, there is an incredibly beautiful gospel choir. But I'm going to assume that all those voices are yours. Is that right? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah all me. All me. <laughs> how, do you remember how many tracks of vocals you laid on that? Because it's just brilliant. Is it just the bit that goes, ah? <laughs> There's a, Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember that. Yeah, the bit that goes out. Yeah, that's just. I think that's the cry of existential pain. Um, I can't remember how many is on there. I should look really. Um, I don't know. There's probably twelve or more. Okay, it just it sounds yeah. like kind of an I'm I'm not in love uh, approach where there were a, a uh, myriad of, of vocals, oh, yeah. but it's just it's so lush and so beautiful. I just oh, I, thank you all. Yeah. I learned that from my mother. I mean, she was she's really good at choirs, and, and my dad would you know arrange some things and. Yeah, we love we love layering vocals, all of us. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a family heritage thing. <laughs> but it's but the, the wonderful thing is it's not just sort of the same. You're not singing the same thing. You're singing singing in different octaves, and you're singing in uh, different harmonies, and uh, it's just quite quite glorious. Um, oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Change the record again, and uh, a very electropop synth pop feel, but with acoustic guitar, which is really cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> what was that about? What was Change the Record about? Uh, that was probably a social media song. <laughs> it's, it feels so crass to say you're influenced by social media, but it's true. You look mm -hmm. at, um, especially over the last few years we've just had, yeah. uh, people like to rant and rave about things, and yet. You know, you have to actually get out there and do something about it. You can't just say something should be done about this and then leave it there. Um, you have to do it. So it's it's just struck me that everybody was going on, on marches and ranting and raving and yet nothing was actually happening. Or I don't know. It's really difficult because people feel powerless in the face of politics and war and disease and everything that's going on on a global scale. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if we can change the world record but we can change you know our immediate surroundings we can change our reaction to the situation which is what the alexander technique is about is uh, getting getting in there at the point of decision and you can you can choose not to get wound up about something or choose to take a different action mm -hmm. so yeah we, we have to change change the way we react to things in order to affect change in in whatever's happening and it starts on a personal basis so so yeah that's what that was about yeah <laughs> what's the uh, live music scene like in the UK right now have for the most part as have you put COVID behind you and everybody's sort of back to normal or still is there still some concern hmm uh, I don't know it seems it seems like everybody's pretending that COVID's gone uh, when we started back in 
we did a couple of things. We were very lucky to do some outdoor events in 2020. And then we started touring with Robin Hitchcock and Blow Monkeys in 21. And it was like the first uh, indoor gig since since it had all kicked off. And all of a sudden it felt very... Uh, very warm and very, very breathy, <laughs> you know mm. what I mean? Like, ooh. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you know, everyone's concerned. You, you know, you've got to get through the tour. Um, it's been a bit rocky, I've got to say, not in a good way. <laughs> yeah. um, but I don't know. Things, the venues are filling up again. A lot of people are still cautious to go out. Uh, I was hoping that venues would have made a real difference in terms of just so things like uh you know cleaning up the backstage area <laughs> some of them are still you know they, they could have put a mop round or something or a lick of paint um mm. others are just completely ignoring you know we did this whole time zone tour thing everybody has embraced live streaming mm -hmm. during lockdown i was really hoping that venues could just work on that double their income have a live gig and a live stream gig at the same time right i think by pretending that the whole pandemic didn't happen. We've lost a lot of valuable uh, experiences that we could have incorporated. You know, I've got people who come to the live stream shows who probably never be able to get to a, a live show of mine because they're abroad or they're remote or they can't get out of the house. So, yeah, we're back into it. But then ticket sales are still cautious. There are a lot of things getting uh, postponed or just not booked again. Or, mm. So it's, it's tricky times, but I think uh, we need to be innovative and we need to think of different ways to bring live music to people um you know safely and with great diversity and accessibility and all that kind of stuff yeah no agreed we, we had started that sort of hybrid model last year here in canada mm. and i had great hope that that might persist because what a wonderful thing to go forward with even if covid does eventually sort of go by the wayside to have that ability to see a, a concert any way you want mm. to buy an online ticket or to go to the venue you've got the choice and i was really surprised to see it just come Kind of die off yeah. uh, in favor of just you know seeing a, uh, a concert in person yeah it is really daft because going out uh, to see a concert especially now i mean you're used to cold the colder temperatures over there but now it's like below freezing in the uk we're not used to it right and uh it's it's really it's kind of you know it's a bit irresponsible to say no no you should still come out and see us you know but even though you might get stuck in the snow or you you know you might freeze to death if you right. break down or something we're still saying oh no come out and actually if people could just say look I'll buy a ticket and watch you on you know from my living room they're still participating in the gig um and there's just no need for this uh you know either or dualism it's, it could be everything and i think right. you know I, I know i could sell more tickets to my gigs if i had live stream gigs you know, I've got pe people all over the place who'd, who'd like to see it, mm -hmm. but I'm never going to be able to get to them to play. So, uh, so, yeah, it's a shame. It's a real shame. Maybe it will come back. But I think we're going to look at more live stream gigs ourselves, you know, me and Chris, from, just from, from our little cubby hole that we have here. Yeah. Did you find that there was a bigger expense in terms of developing the infrastructure to do the live streaming, or was it really sort of not that significant? Not really. We had um, <clears throat> we had a little video camera. I can't remember how we did the first one, but the, the, the time zone tour, because we did 24 shows in uh, a month, right. um, we could really refine the technology. We used OBS for streaming, and we started adding graphics, and then uh, Chris got um, <clears throat> a splitter so he could route the audio and make it all good and shiny and wonderful and so it wasn't just directly into a laptop but we really wanted to get it uh sounding the best and looking the best right 
Um, so yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a real investment. I mean, I, I even got to speak to lovely Midjure. He was doing a similar thing in his studio, and I mentioned something online. So oh, cool. he spoke to me about uh, <laughs> that was surreal. I tell you, I, um, I had a conversation with him about cameras. Oh, you've got to get this camera; it's the best. And <sighs> but we also talked about how scary it was. You know, he said, oh, "I don't think we're going to get back gigging anytime soon." And right. but but people like him, he's still doing uh, online shows, and Robin Hitchcock's still doing them. So um, yeah, there's still a place for it, and I hope we'll all. Maybe after another cold snap winter, we'll all realize the value of it. <laughs> I remember when Midge came to Canada last year that he was doing kind of a hybrid model where it would be a, a live stream as well as sort of a limited number of people uh, attending in person. Yeah, yeah, it makes absolute sense because why not? <laughs> right. You get the atmosphere of a real live gig and people can watch from home. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to talk a little bit about your connection to David Bowie, who just happens to be um, a hero of mine. <laughs> and I'm sure virtually everyone you've ever talked to. But um, so back in 1969, your dad mm. produces David's second album, but the first real album, I suppose, that people it, eponymously named, but people tend to call it Space Oddity. Yeah. On it is this gorgeous song called Letter to Hermione, and I'm sure you already know where I'm going here. Oh, yes. Um, which contains an extraordinary acoustic guitar work by Keith Christmas. Fast yeah. forward nearly 50 years, and you're on stage with Keith <laughs> Christmas playing Letter to Hermione, and you're singing. How surreal oh. was that? <laughs> oh, I don't know who was more nervous. Um, <laughs> funny enough, I'd already known Keith. Um through I think it was a friend on the Isle of Wight um, who who promotes gigs, Andy Barding, and he put us on with Keith, and then I met him a couple of other times. So then we did this big, uh, you know, 50th anniversary gig at the Roundhouse, which was like the day before the pandemic shut everything down. And um, <clears throat> my dad said, oh, we're not going to get you to support as normal, but, you know, we've got this guy, Keith Christmas, it's pretty significant. He was there at the beginning, and I said, oh, I know Keith, yeah, sure. <laughs> so they... They suggested we, we sing that together. Um, so that was a real treat because Keith is just gorgeous. And um, But, you know, the usual Bowie chord sequence that I had to learn and strum while Keith played all the twiddly bits. It's like, what the heck are these chords? God damn you. <laughs> Everything, you know, always the same with his songs. So um, I think I think we got away with it. And then we did it again the following year at the Beckenham Bandstand gig, which is a lovely Wendy Faulkner has been battling to save the Victorian Bandstand where the, the um, Beckenham, what was it called? The Beckenham Arts Lab was started mm. and where, where Bowie wrote Life on Mars. So right. So yeah, so we played there as well in the sunshine. So yeah, that was great. <laughs> I don't, I don't know which performance I saw, but it was stunningly beautiful. I mean, the two of you together, you've got mm. this gorgeous voice and uh, strumming the acoustic, and Keith <laughs> with those brilliant acoustic licks. Just it was, yeah, yeah, yeah it was a real. Treat. I think there's probably probably Wendy's video from the Roundhouse. She's always um, okay. she's always at the front, standing in front of Tony. Bless yeah. her, <laughs> she's a wonderful woman. <laughs> Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit about Holy Holy. Mm -hmm. Originally, I guess, I don't know if it morphed a little bit over time, but originally it was an homage to um, David's Man Who Sold the World because mm -hmm. uh, Woody played on it, your dad played on it, uh, your dad yeah. produced it. Um, the first thing I want to ask, though, is a lot of the songs from that album were conceived and written where your dad, Woody, 
uh, Mick and David lived in Haddon Hall. Mm -hmm. Did you ever get a chance to visit Haddon Hall? No, I never did, unfortunately. It would have been cool. I'm not sure. I don't think it's there anymore even. Uh, I'm not sure when it was uh, knocked down, but it sounds like, I mean, proper rock and roll, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Jamming. Yeah. And and that's how the album sounds, doesn't it? It sounds raw and live and wonderful. Yeah. yeah, it really comes across. Yeah. In fact, I heard them. I I dropped in. I wasn't part of the band, and I dropped into the joint in London where they were rehearsing. And Steve Norman was uh, was there, <clears throat> and um, quite a few other people at the time. And I thought, oh, they sound a bit kind of you know rough around the edges, uh, but you know in a good way. And then I put the album on. I think it was the first time I properly listened to the album on the on the bus on the way home, and uh, it sounded exactly the same rough around the edges right. rock and roll style. So they captured it perfectly. Right. And so uh, Tom asked me to join. I think it was the year later in the fifteen tour. He said, "Do you want to get on um, Tom Wilcox? Put it all together." Right. He said, "Do you want to get on the backing vocals with Lisa Ronson, Mick's daughter, and uh, Hannah, uh, his niece, uh, Maggie's daughter?" And um, yeah, that was great fun, you know, all the mini dresses and high heels and stuff. And then I graduated up uh, through the ranks. <laughs> Steve Norman left and was replaced by Terry Edwards and then Terry left and bequeathed his place to me. So I'm very, I'm very happy up front now. <laughs> I didn't realise it was Tom who asked you to join. Yeah, well, yeah. I think there was some gentle campaigning going on in the background. Oh. But uh, <laughs> um, well, he asked me to sue support as well. So Chris and I supported uh, right. most most of the tours since then, um, which is really wonderful, gratifying experience. So I have to kind of do the opening sets and then run off and quick change and then run back on and do do the rest of the show. That's <laughs> yeah, very really cool. Good fun. Yeah. Um, what was it like the very first time? walking on that stage to play that material with your dad and Woody? Uh, well, it was it was great, obviously. The first time I was on the backing vocals and, you know, a bit of percussion, so that was right. that was a lot more in my comfort zone. Right. Um, but it was hard to remember that, you know, those guys in front of me and next to me were, were on the original record. You know, it's it's just surreal. Right. And even Glenn, Glenn mentions it every night. That, you know, it's like, that's that's Tony and that's Woody playing. Um, so it's great. I don't think I even realised it was my dad playing on uh, on the original Man Who Sold the World song. Oh, OK. Until, <laughs> so I never really put... You, you don't really put two and two together with your parents very often, do you? <laughs> <laughs> but I think for most people, uh, you know, they see your dad as that iconic producer, not remembering that he's an amazing bass player. Oh, yeah. I mean, first and foremost, he's a musician, you know, bass player, he played, you know, wedding bands in the Catskills and things like that. Right. Upright bass, in fact. So, yeah, he really knows his stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, he, he hasn't got to play live as much as I think he'd want to, but uh, so he's really been enjoying being on stage and striking all the poses and being a proper <laughs> rock star. <laughs> um, I, I listened to an interview you did uh, a while back about being in Toronto in 2016 with Holy Holy um, <sighs> when you heard of, of David's death. And I guess, in fact, you had... Uh, chatted with him uh, the the group of you had chatted with him a few nights previous to sing him happy birthday <laughs> but tell me about that sort of process of deciding whether or not you should go on what was that conversation mm. like so we played in new york the couple of nights before and tony had um, apparently called david from the stage and we all sang and everybody was happy and then <clears throat> we had a night off uh i think there was a gig that got cancelled or something but we went up to toronto and we had a night off and 
We had all a lovely dinner and everything like that. And then we all woke up, we're kind of in the middle of the night, to, to messages going, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. You know, my dad most of all. So he, he got up in the middle of the night and was speaking to people. And <clears throat> so I woke up and I, I knocked on his door and plur, it was just crazy. So we all met over breakfast and said, what do we do? Should we carry on? And I said, yes, I think, you know, definitely it's catharsis therapy. So thankfully, <clears throat> obviously it wasn't my decision, but thankfully uh, Tony agreed with me and we all agreed. And uh, so we played two, well, we had the one night in Toronto booked. Um, I think that day we went for a walk and it was a beautiful clear day, went up the CN Tower, which felt very symbolic, freezing cold, I might add. Mm. And um, we played that night and then due to <laughs> popular demand, as they say, we played the following night in the same place, the Opera House. Is it the Opera House? Yep. <clears throat> and um, it was just, you know, we couldn't play it straight. It was just, everybody was crying. We were crying. They were crying. The looks on their faces, it was just incredible. And uh, it just seemed fitting, you know. You can't stop the music at a time like that. Yeah. Um, so, and then we just, we felt like after that, the rest of the tour, uh, around, it was just down the East Coast at the time, we felt like messengers, you know, Foot soldiers, I think, were referred to. We were just playing the music and allowing everybody to bawl their eyes out, yeah. us included. Uh, you know, I feel especially for my father who had to go through a very public grieving process, you know, from losing his friend. You know, none of us in the band knew him that pers personally. But, yeah, it was uh, it was incredible. And then, and then we got another tour, six-week tour, on the back of two, again, it was planned to be one... Um, celebration of david's music at carnegie hall which was arranged you know the previous october mm -hmm. and then they arranged another one again demand surged <laughs> at radio city the night after and then we went on a six-week tour around the rest of america yeah. and again it was like that permanently like fans just going mental and us going mental <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah it felt like a real privilege uh and we were you know this this these things have been booked before david's death you know, it seemed that some some people were saying we were cashing in, but of course it, we weren't at all. Mm -hmm. Just we were, we were on it anyway. And David had given the band his blessing unofficially. Tony had shown him a video of us playing Width of a Circle at the Isle of Wight, I think. And he said, he said, why do you want to do this? And Tony said, because we never played this album live. Mm. So we never got to gig it. And David said, oh, OK, yeah, it's pretty good. So... So he was he was on our side, bless him. <laughs> Thankfully, that's lovely. And you know, any time I've heard because I've seen I, I saw David perform many many times, and any time he did play with the Circle, it was never like the original. So lovely <laughs> that you're able to to do that and bring sort of the original version. Oh yeah, well of course we've got a lot more people in the band. We're now down to a slim seven piece. Um, but, you know, of course, we've got twin guitars, Paul and James, and the keyboards, Jeanette, and so we were able to cover all those bases. Uh, bases, sorry, as a pun. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we can get we can get most of the sound out in one go, yeah. whereas he only ever had, you know, four or five, didn't he? The, the Spiders and right. Mike Garson. Right. You started uh, as an encore. You started singing Where Are We Now? Oh. Tell me about yeah. performing that, because particularly after David's death. Yeah, I uh, gosh, who suggested that? I think it was James, and you know, we were talking about set list for the next tour. And he said, "How about that?" And I was like, "Whoa, no way, no, that would be ooh. Where could we put that in the set? It's, it's a beautiful song, but it's so quiet and introspective." Yeah. 
Um, but uh, of course, Tony said, "Yeah, I could try that. It's a good idea." And uh, and we did it. And it's it's a real moment, you know. We've got a great lighting director, um, Martin, and he just puts the disco ball on, and we're all covered in beautiful sparkling lights. And oh. it's really, I'm I'm barely playing. I'm just playing just to be on the stage, basically. But <laughs> uh, like Paul Cutterford does all the all this hard work with with his Ebo, and mm-hmm. it's just beautiful, really poignant and beautiful, and. Uh, yeah, it's a lovely moment. And then we finish with something incredibly loud like Suffragette City or something like right, that. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Blow everyone up. Yeah. Well, you have mentioned that your dad hadn't played live in quite a long time. How was he feeling about playing live with, with that material? Um, he was loving it. He really did his homework. He got the same bass, uh, you know, a modern version of the same bass that he'd used, a short scale okay. um, Gibson SG bass. And... Um, so he learnt, he basically transcribed all of his bass parts from the original album. And initially he, he only played in the 15 tour, he only played the first half of the show. Oh. And then Erdl Kizilke came on and played, the, all you know, the greatest hits section. Right. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, Tony was reading his book, you know, he was reading from the, from the page the first few times. He wanted to get it absolutely right because, of course, fans know if you've got one <laughs> yeah. note out of place. Oh, I didn't play it right. <laughs> So he's got the full transcription. I keep saying you should uh, publish this as a as a book of music. But uh, obviously, after a while, you know, I was playing off. Once I picked up the the twelve string and the saxophone, I was desperately cribbing off the page as well. So <laughs> I didn't blame him for that. So yeah, so he but he loved it. He has played obviously over the years. He's done his own what he called TV show in uh, places like the City Winery, I think, um, oh, okay. in, in New York. You know, songs that he's produced and all that. So yeah, he's done the odd gig, but he's never toured, you know, in such large chunks. Right. So I think he loved it though, and he loved, you know, he's very fit. He does tai chi moves and yeah. all this, so he, he just loves all the showboating yeah. and stuff. <laughs> yeah, it was a, yeah. Um, really really cool for me to see. You know, he posts quite a bit about uh, uh, playing tai chi, and uh, it's near and dear to my mm. heart because I learned it many many years ago, and it's uh, such a wonderful uh, process. Um, uh, is it something that you've tried? Has mm. he taught you? Um, I yeah, he's, he's worked with me a little bit. It's not something I do, unfortunately. I probably should, mm. um, but it it uh, it ties in so beautifully with the Alexander technique as well. It's just like a really good way of uh, taking the technique principles and putting it on the Tai Chi, which of course exists in Tai Chi anyway. You know, the whole Chi, the upness, and all right. that. Uh, in fact, I think he explained it to his teacher, and he went, "Oh yeah, Chi, I do that." <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and Tony, you know, Tony will do it every day uh, on tour and at home, and and it, it's testament to the to the. T- to all of that stuff that he's still so fit and active. It's something that Lou Reed yeah. did quite a bit, both he and Laurie Anderson did. Uh, and I wonder if uh, your mm. dad and Lou practiced together ever. Do you know? They did. They were in the same school. Yes, oh, the same okay. place, same master, Master Wren. In fact, I think Master Wren used to come and uh, I can't remember what it was now, but I remember seeing Lou do something on telly and uh, Master Wren was next to him oh, wow. doing Tai Chi. So yeah, he's quite a, Master Ren is quite a legend. Yeah. I hope I've got this right because if my dad hears this and tells me I'll get it wrong. <laughs> but yes, he and he and Lou were Tai Chi brothers. Oh, yeah. that's so cool. Yeah. Um, I just got uh, one more question about uh, about David. You originally met him when you were what weeks old during the low session at yeah. Chateau d'Aroville. Is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he that is right. He, yep. he apparently didn't really take to babies. <laughs> uh, he probably had other things on his mind, but apparently right. he was fully fully dressed up as you know in the Ziggy regalia. <laughs> um, but uh, my mum, of course, sang sang the backing vocals on Sound and Visions, so she yes. 
So she, you know, made sure that they said, oh, Brian, I think, called down from the studio and said, oh, Mary, I've got a little piece for you. And she just tucked me away with somebody and uh, nipped up and did those backing vocals. So I was I was there, but uh, far too small to be away. (laughs) (laughs) Yet um, many, many years later, during, I guess, the recording of the next day, Mm. you were able to attend some of the recording session. You finally got to meet him properly. What was that like? (laughs) Well, only in a very limited capacity. My my dad has a room in in, uh, in my brother's studio, uh, Human Worldwide, in the city. Okay. And uh, when we uh, Chris and I went for kind of a, a sabbatical holiday out there in twelve, and um, when we got there, Tony said, "This is a big secret. Don't tell anybody. I'm finishing an album with David." <clears throat> and um, so I was never asked to hang out or have lunch or sit down or, or luxuriate in anything, but I was certainly asked to bring the coffee because <laughs> I was kind of interning. So so I'd bring go down and get the coffee and uh, and bring it up. My hands would be shaking and, you know, give me just, you know, whatever, double macchiato. And, and he was always so charming. He was like, oh, your dad's been telling me you've done some gigs and how did they go? And and he was just charming and Aww. lovely. But I, it took me a long time to stop stop shaking and getting over the fact that, oh, my God, this is David Bowie. So even though he was such a huge figure in our family, you know, a a myth (laughs) in some ways, yeah, yeah, that was really surreal. Then one day we went down in the lift, took the lift down together, me and Chris and David, and said to Chris, so where are you from? And he said, Kent. You know, I'm from Kent, yeah. And then we just departed and he vanished in a puff of smoke on the streets. It was just surreal. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing, eh? Yeah. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your mom. Mm. She doesn't perform live anymore, but she's yes. still recording. Uh, yes. And in fact, as we discussed earlier, you're working on a new album with her. Tell me about mm. the new album. Uh, I'd, where did this come from? She, We thought it's about time, really. That's the thing. She'd made a beautiful album with my brother, Morgan, uh, called You Look Familiar. And then we said, oh, we've got we've got some songs kicking around. And we started to pull them together and had some ideas. Uh, and then I decided that it, it really had to step up. I said, I want this album to be as good as the one you've done with Morgan. It will be different, obviously, but... Um, so uh, I looked through my files and I found some songs that needed finishing and she put her magic uh, melodies and lyrics on top and um, I think it's shaping up quite nicely. She's just sent me her last batch of work and I've got to go through them and then I'll go back to her house and work on them again. And she loves she loves singing. She's still a one-take wonder. She's still meticulous. Uh-huh with her vocals and her, her comping. And, you know, we basically said, if you're going to be this picky, you have to learn to use uh, Pro Tools yourself. I think it's logic now. But <laughs> so um, she loves it. She really loves it. And she's uh, still got extremely high standards, but she's just not interested in putting on makeup and a dress and standing on a stage and hanging around in tour buses and all that nonsense that, that goes into doing a gig. <laughs> she's <laughs> so been there. She's a... done that. Why do it anymore? Oh, yeah. yeah. Exactly, yeah. So I'm very grateful that she's still making music. She's made a few albums of her own music uh, on our label, Mary Hopkin Music, and uh, it's great to be able to tell people what a great songwriter she is because she never really got the chance to shout about it back in the 60s. It just wasn't really the done thing for women or anybody, really. (laughs) So she's actually using Pro Tools and Logic now? Yeah. (laughs) That's wild. It is, yeah. Well, um I think it did come out of the comping. She was so meticulous and wanted wanted everything to be just the way she wanted. So uh, Chris, my partner, immensely patient, um, would either sit with her and, and engineer the sessions, but he taught her how to use it and we, we both help her out. And she's always phoning saying, 
oh, it's doing this thing. I don't know what it's doing. And we say, well, we've never heard it do that. I don't know what you've done, but we fix it. And then she carries on. We call it mum tech. Um, but she's she's doing all the like the string arrangements in, in you know, the MIDI arrangements. And, oh, wow. Um, yeah, she's really, she's an amazing musician. She's got an amazing sense of music, harmony, lyrics, uh, the whole lot. So, um, yeah, she's a privilege to work with. And again, she never lets me get away with out of tuneness or bad timing right. or, or, you know, substandard lyrics or anything like that. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's an exacting process, but it's very satisfying. And are you yeah. providing any, any vocals or instrumentation as well, or are you just sort of coordinating the sessions? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a dual album. It will be released under both our names. Um, so, uh, I can't remember the division. There's a few covers on there that we've sung for years and never really recorded. Um, and then there's, um, <clears throat> I think, some that she started and some that I started. Um, so I think the I think the vo- lead vocal split is about half, okay. half each, and then the rest of the work is uh, is probably split too. So yeah, I think it's it's uh, yeah, it's a definite partnership. This album. And is it primarily uh, in the folk vein, or is it uh, does it range? Uh, I guess it, yeah, primarily folk, you'd say. I think a couple are going to get a little bit more rocky. Like I got my my Gretsch, my nice Gretsch guitar, and she oh, said, no. "Oh no, this one needs some some balls to it." So I've got, you know, <laughs> kind of chunky guitar on there and stuff. So yeah, it should be it should be quite nice, diverse, but in the folk folky rocky folky rocky range. Yeah. And when do you think that's going to be released? Uh, hoping by spring. I've got to draw a line under this. I've been I've been holding it up through my <laughs> training and school and other things right. and touring. But so uh, I've got to say, yes, it will be done in the spring. And it'll be, I'm assuming it'll be available on maryhopkin.com. Yes, yeah, probably via both our websites. And we tend to do um, a pre-order on CDs and then do the digital release later. So it'll be on all the usual platforms as well. Okay, great. You do, you had mentioned this early on, you do a celebration of songs from 1968 uh, when both you and the song, those were the days shot to fame, um, (laughs) as well as the tour... If I got this right, very Hopkin, an evening without Mary Hopkin. Oh yes, uh, that was actually the the previous iteration. That was a small tour we did in 2015 with uh, Brian Willoughby, who uh, played for my mum and my dad. Uh, in fact, he's on the live at the Royal Festival Hall album, and okay. his wife Catherine Craig. So they were part of the band. My partner Chris and Simon Adams on drums. Uh, we couldn't sell more than those few gigs, unfortunately. So I, I put the idea to rest, and then. Um, this came out of, a, of a, a slightly different, similar project as well. But I just thought, well, I'll celebrate. So 68 when my mum burst into the scene and then 76 when I was born. Mm-hmm. So all the all the female singer-songwriters uh, of that period. So it's got Joni Mitchell and Carole King and Melanie and uh, Janice Ian. Uh, it's a really lovely show and I'm hoping to book a lot more next year around the UK at least. But like I say, you know, the music scene here is still very slow picking up, so yeah. I have to be patient. But it's yeah. lovely. We've had a lovely reaction so far. Ralph Mattel came to our last gig because he oh. lives down the road from the venue. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, he approved. And and you do, you sing Those Were The Days in both performances? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, that's the finale of the show. Okay. Um, I think, yeah, and we've got some of my mum's songs in there, a couple of mine. So it tells us it tells a story. I've tried to link all the songs together and the songwriters and you know song um, women that my mum admires, ones that I admire that mm. have influenced us. So yeah, it's a nice show. Yeah, we'll see how that one goes. I'm open to bookings. <laughs> and I've I've heard your version of those were the days, and it's beautiful. What oh, uh, you. what was your mum's reaction when she first heard you do it? 
Oh, she's very proud. Um, people say I sound like her because obviously I'm doing, I guess I'm inadvertently doing a, a Mary impression, but right. um, she's proud that I sing it. She's proud that I sing a lot of the songs that she's written as well. And she, she, yeah, she's very proud of the song. She recorded it again in uh, 2018 as a the 50th anniversary. anniversary. Yes, yeah, we did it very stripped down, just me and Morgan and her. But was there some convincing involved? She wasn't. She was a little reluctant to do it. Actually, no. I said, oh. "It's fifty years. Do you fancy recording it?" She went, "Yeah, sure." Oh wow! <laughs> like I say, she she'll always be known for it, so she she oh. should be known for a lot more. But but if you're going to be identified with a song, that's a pretty good song to be identified with. <laughs> what is it about the enduring quality of that song? Because it's still not just as relevant, but it's still just as poignant today as it was fifty years ago. What do you think it is yeah. about that song? Well, it's it is timeless. I mean, it's already it's a song about looking back already. So when she right. first sang it, she was so young, and uh, John Lennon, I think, told her to you know phoned her up over the weekend, but she couldn't quite get it. Said you know just really think about being being that older woman looking back, which is hard when you're only eighteen. But she she nailed it. Wow. <clears throat> and uh, and now when I sing it, you know, when I was at college with Chris in Cardiff, you know, we had a pub called the Tavern. Um, and so to, to me, it's about, you know, standing outside the tavern, looking in, thinking of the times that I used to have in there. So I, it applies to everybody. It applies to some strange people in strange ways. I get a lot of odd messages about it, but everyone has an affinity with it because it yeah. is about something. It's nostalgia, isn't it? Rose tinted glasses. Right. Yeah. And how did you approach the re-recording? Were you trying to stay faithful to the original or do you want to change it up or what was your approach? Uh, not at all. I think possibly in the same spirit as reboots. That um, okay. <laughs> it's it's a great song. It doesn't need uh, too much um, adornment. So right. we just um, played it as if as if she was just sitting in a room, just looking looking back. So just uh, I played guitar. I think there's a twelve string and a six string on there. Morgan played bass. I think I put there's a piano in there as well. Mm-hmm. And Mary just sang it straight off, and uh, we we left out the kids' choir and the you know Richard Houston's wonderful arrangement, but we left left all that out and the, right. the key change. So it's just as is the bare bones. Wow, yeah. Um, you're curating her work. You had mentioned before you started a label for her, and you mm. have a lot of uh, new releases, releases of older material. Uh, I think there's about seven albums up there. Can you can you tell me about them? Yeah, there's loads. I think the newest one is, uh, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Pieces was the latest one. I think that's catalogue number 15. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was started because we had uh, two-inch reels in the loft and oh. they were literally making a crack in the ceiling. Oh, wow. So um, so we have to do something about these and we kept moving house and they were getting really annoying to lug around. So, um, so we got them digitised and then Chris and Mary started looking through them and... We found things that were written on the labels, so we knew they were there, but also things like uh, Leaf Must Fall, we didn't know was there. So um, we thought, well, let's start releasing them. We started with the Festival All album, which was pretty much ready-made, and we just remastered that in the last year, again, because we ran out of CDs. Um, So it's all stuff that she'd recorded with my dad, and they didn't get a deal at the time because she wasn't interested in touring the world and, you know, doing all that faffy stuff. So she said, as long as you don't make me do anything except sing, uh, no interviews, no tour- no nothing, um, you can put these out. So that's that's how it came about. And thankfully, there's a really great fan base there that still want to hear her music. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah. So And then once she knew that there were people listening to newer stuff and admiring it, um, 
got her spurred on to write new stuff. Once we ran out of the old stuff, she had to make some more. So it's been fantastic to to keep her going and uh, feeling appreciated and current as well. She's written some such beautiful songs. I'm surprised those two-inch tapes... uh survived being up in a loft for you know how many how many years because they can be quite fragile and brittle yes uh we we used a great company in london called fx copy and they they are specialists in uh they have to i think some of them had to be baked you know to keep the the oxide on right um and they just we sent them all the tapes i think i said you can get rid of the tapes we'll have the boxes back um and uh they sent us a a hard drive with all these um pro tools sessions just straight wow. off the multi-tracks so that's what we were able to find so it's great in there you can hear my dad queuing things up and a bit of chit chat and it's lovely really lovely to hear oh that's great uh one more question before we take a break and come back and talk about um your two picks for essence of cool um mm. have you ever fancied a collaboration with lisa ronson oh gosh <laughs> um <clears throat> it hasn't really come up to be honest uh, apart oh. from us singing together in holy holy but uh uh, she did a wonderful album herself uh, with Paul Cutterford and Tom Wilcox. Yeah, and I don't think she's uh, she's concentrating on music so much these days. Oh, okay. but um, she's got a lovely silky voice though, so I don't know. It probably won't be on the cards, but I just figured Tom asking. Wilcox, being the producer extraordinaire that he is, uh, would have saw, <laughs> uh, seen a wonderful opportunity to put the two of you together. Yeah, we called ourselves the Ronties for a while, although yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i don't think no i don't think so i'm not i'm not that great at collaborating to be honest outside oh. my family I'm, i just think i'm a bit selfish or awkward but um okay. yeah i All hope right. she does something else though she's a lovely voice on that note i want to take a break and when we come back we're going to talk about your two picks for the essence of cool robin hitchcock and the blow monkeys we'll be right back We want to hear from you. Let us know what you liked and even what you didn't like. Have you got a show or guest idea? Well, drop us a line. Our email addy is info at theessenceofcool.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Now let's get back to the show. We're back on The Essence of Cool. We're talking to Jessica Lee Morgan. And we're going to talk about your two picks of The Essence of Cool, Robin Hitchcock and The Blow Monkeys. Mm. Slash Dr. Robert. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's talk about Robin Hitchcock first. I want to start with the, the old wiki background, if you um, uh, forgive me here. Um, mm. He led the Soft Boys in the late 70s, releasing the influ- influential album Underwater Moonlight. Uh, then began a prolific solo career that recording 22 studio albums and numerous other releases. Um, from his uh, from the Rolling Stone, they say he's a gifted melodist. I've never heard that term before. <laughs> I like that. Hitchcock nests engaging lyrics in some of the most bracing, rainbow-hued pop this side of Revolver. He rests inspiration not from ordinary life, but from extraordinary imaginings. What a wonderful thing to say. How did you first become aware of Robin? I was trying to remember, actually. Uh, I seem to have followed him around for a while. He's, one of his little cartoons appeared on the wall of the guy who masters our music, Donald Whelan, in South Wales. Oh. Because he works with uh, a producer called Charlie Francis down there. So, And then I just kept, you know, there was some graffiti on the wall in the Tabernacle, which is another venue where we actually did a, a show with uh, the Blow Monkeys before we properly met. So it's just this kind of, you know, m- mysterious legend just kind of waft around. And then 
Um, we actually met when we were doing the Carnegie Hall show, the, the David Bowie uh, tribute concert, oh. and he got up and sang Soul Love. Oh, so he already knew uh, Terry Edwards, who was still with us at the time, and uh, we all went back to the city winery for the after party, and we got chatting. And there's a there's a selfie with all of us leering drunkly into the camera. And then, <laughs> um, <clears throat> so then I saw he uh, was touring in the UK. Uh, I think a year or so later. So I emailed and I said, "Hello, Robin. You might remember me." Blah blah blah. Um, I said, "If you you know if you'd like a support, uh, I'd be willing. You know, uh, and honoured. <laughs> it's really difficult to ask these things." Yeah. And he said, yeah, sure. And I think he gave us half the tour, which was lovely. Um, that was in 18. And then he just kept asking us back. And we've just done our fifth tour with him uh, wow. in um, uh, October. Did some more dates. And I think we've got some more coming up next spring. Oh, brilliant. So I said, I don't know. I don't know why he keep asking us back. But, you know, he's he's just very generous and... Uh, and likes having us around because we, I guess, we're polite and we don't smell or something. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and how familiar were you with his? Because it's quite an extensive catalogue. How familiar were you with his material? I have to admit, I was not really familiar. <laughs> I was aware of a few of his uh, of his songs, of course, but um, I'm just. I think I'm. The reality is, I'm just more drawn to people as people and as live artists. So once I saw him play live, you know, I was standing behind him when he sang "Soul Love," and uh, and then getting to know him through his live performances. That's when the magic happens, really, for me, just to see see him play these incredible songs. And I got to know the songs from live versions, and then I started to listen to the to the recorded versions. And of course, they're different but similar and recognizable. So yeah, that's that. That's my exploration of him, uh, which I think is a much nicer way, really, in some ways. I think it's very cool. Tell me about him as a performer. What what strikes you as a performer? He is. He's. Um, I'll be blushing. I hope he doesn't listen to this. He's absolutely <laughs> magnetic. Um, again, like live music to me is it's make or break. Really, you get some performers who just don't engage, or they have good songs but they don't really uh, grab you. Mm-hmm. But Robin comes on. He'll come on and he just takes his time. He'll plug himself in. He'll stare at the audience a bit. And people are just hanging off his every move and every word. And he he plays, we've only ever really seen him with, uh, as a solo artist. He's played a few times with his band <clears throat> and he's had members of the Soft Boys join, join in. But um, it's lovely. He's just, he's a storyteller and he'll go off into crazy monologues and tell you about mice and electrified rodents and cheese and some, you know, and then he'll say... Uh, that's not what this song is about, but it's what I was thinking of when I wrote it. And I just think, what? Um, he's incredible. I mean, you could just ditch the songs uh, and just talk. I think he has done so. Right. Uh, but yeah, he's so entertaining, and I've learned an awful lot just from watching him. And of course, you, as a support act, a touring support, you get to watch them at work every night, right. which is a real privilege. So yeah, he's amazing. <laughs> what is it about? Because he really is so imaginative particularly when it comes to lyrics and just the content of songs um could you describe the kind of writer he is the kind of lyricist he is um i think i've heard him describe himself as a stream of consciousness Mm -hmm. um and it's true i mean like i say songs do write themselves you know they just come out of nowhere and just assert themselves but uh he says he writes them and then afterwards, he'll he'll think about where they come from. Right. Um, whatever he was thinking of at the time, you hear whatever you want to hear in them. So, you mm. know, you just talk about 
some crazy thing and then he'll then he'll just cut your heart open and tear it out you know it's just incredible um the variety you know i think and the surrealism and the realism go together so well because it just you you pull out from your own experience what you want to hear in his songs as well Mm -hmm. so yeah is there a particular song that really resonates with you that he performs live um, there are a lot. I love on the on the latest tour he was doing stuff from his new album Shuffle Mania, mm-hmm. and there's a song uh, based on a Raymond Chandler title, uh, "The Man Who Loves the Rain." Right. <clears throat> really, just a beautiful imagery and a lovely story, and you don't really know what it's about, but you just got this lonely picture, it's very poignant and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we've been. Uh, he's been kind enough to, you know, he suddenly said, "Oh, do you fancy doing an encore together?" And we we ended up doing uh, some of his classics like Brenda's Iron Sledge and Queen of Eyes, and then we added two more on the last tour. So to to play his songs as well and sing the harmonies that you know he sang and Morris Windsor sang is just is, that's another real privilege as well. Yeah, I had the pleasure of seeing a YouTube <clears throat> clip where you perform Queen of Eyes and Brenda's Iron Sledge with him. What, oh, you, brilliant! What to, tell me about the experience of of playing with him? Um, that's really quite intimidating. I've got to say, he's a very friendly chap, but he's also very intense. I mean, and also right. he's really tall. So, right. <laughs> I mean, I'm used to standing next to tall people like Glenn and, and Paul on Holy Holy, but you're there with with Robin, who you you have to you know you realise is quite a legend, right? And then he'll he'll look at you to cue you into certain parts of the song. Um, so yeah, it's quite. You feel like you're real, really under a spotlight when you stand next to him and play. But but it's also a real joy. And then to see the audience beaming at you because they love this song and they love him and they're all thinking, "Oh my god, I'm so jealous of you two standing there." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really. And then yeah, and then the other thing is suddenly, you know, first of all we have to tune up because he he doesn't use a tuner on stage. So <laughs> I'll come in and I've got a pedal tuner. So we'll spend a while tuning. He tunes to me, yes. <laughs> and then everybody looks at us and thinks, "Oh my god, I wouldn't dare to do this without telling a joke about a, you know, a duck or something like that." Um, but nobody minds, and they love all that process. So, yeah, uh, yeah so it's really magical, and I, I haven't quite got over it, but it's it's wonderful. It's I'm very just, real. So it's very weird. authentic. You know, you really feel <laughs> yeah. like you're 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 seeing a real person in concert. It's not just some you know, hyped up. It pop sure star. is. Yeah. yeah, definitely, definitely. It's a lived experience. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. He, I've seen a couple of um, interviews with him, and he calls him one of the interviews, he's, he called himself an indiscriminate songwriter, where he records sort of whatever group of songs he's just written, and he <laughs> made the comparison to Nick Lowe, who, mm. he says, has the patience to really assess whether a song's worthy of recording or belongs with the album that he's recording. Where do you fall in as a songwriter? Are you more discriminate and really sort of assess the uh, whether a song is right for that particular record? <laughs> uh, I've always wanted to write a concept album, but every time I get closer to to you know I've got to get something together, I just think oh to hell with this, and I just I do just cobble together the the ten most decent songs I have at the time, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then like I say after that, it's up to people what they decide that the, the album is about if it has a theme or something, right. Um, but I, I, yeah, I think probably from Robin's perspective, it's like, well, it's Robin. There are songs he's singing and he's playing. That's you know, what more of a thing do you want? Right. That's, that's it. <laughs> I think that's how Bowie wrote as well. It's like, well, you know, I've I've got ten songs. He would write songs for the album. That was it, and they yeah. would just be whatever was on his mind. And that's it. Job yeah. done. Bish bash bosh. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, there were a couple of albums that were more conceptual, like outside, but uh, yeah. yeah, for the most part, it was just sort of cobbling together of a, of a bunch of uh, disparate songs that sounded yeah. cool together, right? Yeah, exactly. I know it's, that's yeah. I think variety is uh, it helps as well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, Robin yeah. also mentioned that for him, it's easier to write what he feels is a good song after having just written another song that if he hasn't written for a while he struggles to write something that's halfway decent do you do you feel the same or does it just kind of come out whenever and it's yeah. just as good regardless um i think uh songs songs surprise you they creep up on you and they go hear me out and i'll just right. i have this whole fully fledged song and arrangement in my head before i've ever ever uttered it out loud so they do arrive or phrases will come and I'll, I'll note down a phrase and think, well, oh, that's good. I was collect for a while. I was collecting Robin's tweets thinking, God, that's a, there's a song in that one. Oh, and that that's one. brilliant. <laughs> did, you, did you write a song that way? I've got a list. He has inspired one, but it hasn't come out quite right. But um, I, I've told him I'll, I'll cut him in if, uh, you know, if they do become songs. But um, yeah, I think, um, I think you, you do, you do go on a songwriting spree, you know, if you're feeling like feeling good or feeling inspired or going traveling or somewhere where you're not normally that that's when they tend to come out. But yeah. sometimes you just, life gets in the way, doesn't it? And you yeah. get distracted and you can't get anything out. But yeah. yeah, you have to, you have to practice and you have to value yourself as well. You have to, like for a long time I had songs that I thought, oh, that's terrible. And nobody's ever going to hear that. And then I plucked up the courage and got Chris to listen to them. And he was like, that's great. What's wrong with it? Just put it on the next album. And I go, oh, really? Okay. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it's not, it's, I've decided it's not for the songwriter to decide whether it's a good song or not. I think it's for somebody else to decide, you know. Um, you've got to do what you feel is kind of okay. Mm. But if you throw everything in the bin because you're slightly not happy with it, then you'll never write anything. So try and run it past at least one other person if you can <laughs> yeah well, we're not we're not particularly objective about our own songs are we <laughs> no it's impossible it's impossible you can't <laughs> is there anything that you've learned specifically from robin that you've incorporated in your own songwriting i think possibly the well the apparent spontaneity that he has uh mm. Just to just to be more accepting, like say, if I come out with a strange lyric, it's like, well, that, there it is. That's what the lyric was at the time, and that's what came out, and that's what deserves to be there. So, mm. I guess he's given me confidence, and then especially when you set like you're sound checking, and he's lurking around in the background, and you think, oh my god, he's listening to me, <laughs> uh, and then he'll come up and say, oh, I love that. That guitar sounds great. Oh, I love that song. I particularly like that one and that lyric about such and such. And I think, oh my god, he's listened. So that that's. Uh, that really helps <laughs> to have some approval. Yeah. yeah. Any favourite memories of touring with Robin? Oh, gosh. It's hard to pinpoint, really. I mean, we've, uh, we travel separately, but uh, on a couple of tours, he's used uh, his, uh, his lovely sister Fleur and her husband Ian to, to drive around and help with the merch. So to get to know them as well has been great. And we have, you know, like there was ice cream and deal on the seafront. That was lovely. And um, just to, to, to be part of the, the orbit we try and stay out of his way because you know nobody wants a support act getting getting uh right in your way when you're supporting but um the few times we've managed to sit down and have a drink or have dinner together or something it'd be really lovely and that sometimes chris and i'll be ready to go on stage and then all of a sudden robin would suddenly start on some really poignant long story about his father or uh, there was one time i can't remember where it was now hartford he suddenly starts talking about the Bay of Tapestry or something, William the Conqueror, and like you know, checking historical facts. I'm thinking this is great, but would wow. you on stage in two minutes? <laughs> <laughs> you really, 
he really picks his moments, but uh, that's wonderful. And then quite often I'll tell the audience what what's a part, you know. But he's very, he's lovely. He's very generous, very generous with his rider. There is always uh, a massive load of cheese in the fridge backstage. That's all true. Uh, he is a cheese fiend. So, um, yeah, so it's it's lovely. And I'm just so grateful to have had it have it last so long. <laughs> Something that I should have uh, asked you off the top is your definition of cool in terms of mm. when an artist is cool. We've talked to, you know, many of the guests uh, in the past have said that, you know, cool means the artist is uncompromising, is ever-changing, uh, uncaring what the fans or critics think. Mm. What is your definition of cool? <clears throat> I think, yeah, uh, authenticity mm. and, not, and, and sticking to your own path. Uh, you're cool if you can weather all the storms life throws at you, like... You know, hearing about Robin and and uh, and the Blow Monkeys, what they've gone through in the past. You know, they've been through heights of fame, and then they get dropped, and then up and down, and then this, that, and the other happens to them. And and they've weathered it all, and they're still they've still got something to say, and it's relevant, and they still want to play to people. And then and then they're humble and grateful at the same time. Every time you see them play, they go, "Thank you so much for coming out." I'm really grateful. They mean it. They mean it. We all mean it because you should never take. Um, you should never take it for granted, basically. Right. Which leads me to talking about uh, the Blow Monkeys and Dr. Robert specifically. Uh, seen a couple of interviews with him, and he certainly feels, seems like a very humble person. Yeah. I mean, when... Um, <laughs> so my brother used to listen to uh, to the Blow Monkeys, you know, back in the 80s. He had the albums, and I loved it too. And we did that... Uh, there was a vintage TV show, and they were there playing and we were on the bill as well uh and then the membranes was the other one oh, wow. with uh john robs john rob was kind of hosting and interviewing and so the blow monkeys were sat in the cafe and i was just totally in awe and like oh my god it's the blow monkeys um i forgot that we were like equal footing on the same show which is bizarre i don't know how that happened but um so once in uh, after a holy holy gig in guildford uh, a promoter who i knew came up to me and said oh i've got, I've got the blow monkeys coming um soon and uh, I literally grabbed him by his lapels and shook him and said, please, 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 can I support them? He said, yes, yes, it's fine. Put me down. I was going to ask you anyway. So he asked me and Chris and we supported them, which was wonderful. And then they said, oh, we haven't got anyone for next week. What are you doing? So we did a couple more. And then we went on tour again last year with them. Um, I've lost track now and we've just done some more. So again, it's wow. it's been a, such a lovely friendship and there's three of the original members. I think the, the drummer, Tony, went to join the Illegal Eagles, I think. Um, but they're such lovely, lovely people. I mean, I always imagined Robin and Dr. Robert kind of these incredibly confident, slightly dark, slightly intimidating people, you know, like uh, like prefects in a common room glaring at each other. But <laughs> once you get over that, it takes me a while to get over that with each of them. And one of the nights in London with the Blow Monkeys, um, I again, staying out of the way and I chipped into a conversation they were having about something. And uh, Robert came over and just talked to me for about half an hour about T-Rex and Bowie and all this. And again, it was like, dude, this is amazing, but I'm going on in five minutes. You know? So... <laughs> <laughs> and again it was like oh my god you're dr robert wow so he looks really intimidating his whole persona from the 80s and like has been very kind of you know loose and wonderful but uh again he's a sweet fellow with a heart of gold and really really stands for his uh stands up for what he believes in as well they both they both do absolutely they wear their politics on their sleeve and their hearts on their sleeve and you know they don't 
they're just honest about where they're coming from, which I, yeah. which I which I do think is cool to have the confidence to say what you believe and to sing about what you believe in. Agreed. is uh, so important. Yeah. Uh, just a quick overview for the for the listeners who don't know Blow Monkeys. They have released eleven studio albums, going right back to 1984's "Limping for a Generation," right up to 2021's "Journey to You." Um, been a string of hot singles, including my fave, Digging Your Scene. Um, mm. What was your introduction to the Blow Monkeys? What did you first hear? Do you remember? Um, it would have been back in the day, Digging Your Scene. Oh, gosh. Uh, I can't remember. All their classics, Wait, Choice and Celebrate. And mm-hmm. and they play all those in the set now and it's just heavenly. Uh, yeah. Um, we absolutely loved them. They loved all that, you know, the, the, the funky... The funky feel and you know the it's just iconic um mickey on the bass and it's it just even the way he moved mick on the bass moves you know with his you know the 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 nodding head and the bowler hat and everything and then he still does that now mm. neville on the saxophone just such an amazing sound yeah and uh, and they still got it to see them live now they have you know what i call chops they've seriously got chops you know yeah. they've been described as sophistopop Hmm. And when I first heard them, uh, Digging Your Scene was the one that I first heard. It was, for me, it was very fresh and different from what was on the radio at the time. It was hmm. quite different because I was listening to a lot of synth pop. And there was a huge distinction between what they do and and synth. And I found it kind of similar, not in genre, but just in in feel to Prefab Sprout, where it was just very hmm. fresh and different. How would you yeah. describe their music? I think that's yeah, that's that's a good um, uh, parallel. Uh, there was a there was a whole movement, wasn't there? So so um, Dr. Robert went to play bass for Paul Weller sometime later. So they were all in the same camp, oh, you know, the wow. Star Council, and um, we were also big fans of Level Forty Two. So that yeah, that right. funky, clean sound. Um, it was just so cool. I mean, what's not to love? It was great. Yeah. Um, so Dr. Robert again, was playing bass in Style Council. Uh, no, I think for Paul Weller, not during Star Council, oh, okay. but, but a bit later, he, okay. he was uh, yeah, he was gigging with them and everything. Because that would seem so like cool. a perfect fit for me, him being in Style Council. It would. I don't think he was. I'm going to have to check that fact, but right, no, right. I don't think he was. Okay. Probably some live gigs later and, and recording work and stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and he's they're just. I mean, Dr. Robert's so so accomplished. He's an accomplished. Uh, Producer and composer, obviously, and guitarist. He's a great guitarist. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't think of these things. You don't think of the scope of somebody's talent when they've just been at the top of the charts. You know, you've seen their face in smash hits and, you know, had their poster on your wall and stuff. You just think, oh, it's just a pretty face. But they really, you know, they all could really do it. They mm-hmm. really could. Yeah, you know, like Glenn Gregory in Heaven 17, right. writing music for, for TV now. Right. Real, real accomplished, and I think that's why they've lasted so long. Yeah, because they could do the lot, and they're always permanently interested in new music. So yeah, yeah. In a recent interview, he he mentioned that Dr. Robert, I'm speaking of, mentioned that he doesn't drink anymore, which I applaud mm. as a as a recent sober person. Um, mm. So, but life can get pretty crazy on the road. Is is the rock and roll party thing <laughs> on the road sort of a thing of the past, or? <laughs> so that's much. been in my experience. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, they have. I hadn't noticed that Robert doesn't drink actually, but I guess there are some. Uh, I think there's some zero alcohol beers in the fridge. You know, they, they have. Uh, mm-hmm. I remember on an early date, I said, um, "Don't touch our real ales," and Robert said, "We're not really a real ale kind of band." You know, <laughs> 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 have a, more, more like a glass of wine after. Yeah. Um, 
No, it's very... Uh, there's no riotous excesses or anything like So the most of excesses probably... Uh, Robin's cheese platter. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's very calm. In fact, we noticed on the last tour, you know, if we if we have to share a dressing room, which is not, not really ideal, but sometimes it's nicer from a camaraderie point of view, right. there's a very quiet hour just before we go on. All the chaps just get very quiet and just uh, have a rest, gather their thoughts and everything. And, um, you know, you have to respect these things. But no, they're... They're all very nice and friendly. Again, very very generous with the rider. Um, so you know, if you want apples, it's all fresh fruits and oh, nice. In fact, on the previous tour, there was it was hilarious. They were getting the riders delivered from like Sainsbury's before, and that we had carrots on our rider. The first night, we had like kilo and a half of unprepared carrots, and then wow. you know, four celery heads. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> Could have made soup. Yeah, it's very healthy. All very healthy. Even in Holy Holy, it's pretty healthy as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he says that he doesn't really care much about reviews of a new work and how well it's received. Mm. And I suppose, you know, after 11 albums and a string of hit singles, you can sort of get to that point. Um, but when you're still trying to sort of get a foothold in the industry, perhaps it's not as easy. What's, what is your take on, on reviews and buying into people's response to your music? Does it matter? Uh, I like to think it doesn't. I mean, <clears throat> it's difficult because now it seems to be you chase the reviews so that you've got something to put on your social media. Right. But then you've got to kind of sweet talk people. And, you know, there's uh, one of your countrymen, Aaron Badgley, is always very kind in the Spill magazine. He's a lovely man. Isn't he lovely? And yeah. he's given us such lovely reviews. And I noticed some other people I know have been getting good reviews from him as well. Yeah. So um, it's good. But really, if you, if you pander to reviews, then you're probably not doing it right so you can't you can't uh, let it affect you at all mm. um if, but that's if an interesting present... point that you make though because you you want to tend to sort of ignore it but on the same token as you say in the 21st century you have to accept it because it's part of the the, the social media campaign you've got to promote yourself yeah it's kind of the soundbite generation isn't it right. uh I don't know. I don't know. I suppose it gets you better coverage. Um, and I probably, this new album with my mum, my I probably need to try very hard to get some coverage. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, you know, unless everybody panned it, then I probably wouldn't bother much. A lot of people, like when they review gigs, uh, I've noticed people haven't even turned up to see the support set, i.e. us, but then they've reviewed us as if they have. And I just think, oh, that's such a load of nonsense. Really? And they get facts wrong. Oh, yeah. They get facts wrong and make stuff up and can't be bothered. So I just think I, I don't respect them if they don't respect me. Yeah. There's some people, obviously, who write lovely stuff, like, say, like Aaron, right. and lovely people who do podcasts like you. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> well, just sometimes you think, I, just, I can't be bothered, really. So, yeah, Robert's quite right, I think. Yeah, you've yeah. got to play your own game. Yeah. Um, I did uh, an interview recently with uh, Kevin Hearn of the Bare Naked Ladies, but Kevin's also known mm. for being uh, Lou Reed's musical director for the last six oh. years of, uh, of Lou's life. Wow. And um, he relayed a um, an anecdote where he was reading a review of uh, a Lou performance that he was in. And he went to Lou and he said, Lou, have you seen the, the review? And uh, Lou said, word to the wise, don't read reviews ever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's quite right. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's the same, you know, making music. My gran was an artist, Mary's mother, Elizabeth, and... Um, 
I remember her asking me, oh, what do you think would sell? You know, what can I paint that people would buy? And I was like, that's that's the wrong way to go about it. You just, you just paint from the heart. And she did, you know, she painted what, what she loved and you have to make the music you love. Uh, right. And then I guess, you know, if you look at, if you're doing your own PR, you, you go for the people you think would like it. There's pointless going for people who you think not going to like right. it. Right. If you're going to play the game, you have to play it right. Right. Um, but it is it is a game, isn't it? It's definitely. Sadly, it is, uh, yeah. and and yeah. even more so in this day and age too, when you've got to sort of fight and scramble for every last listen, you know. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's uh, and there's well because there's so many more independent artists. Right. Uh, we're all we're all going. Look at me! Look at me! Right. I mean, like well, Robert and Robin are both in well, Blow Monkeys and Robert and Robin. Very independent artists are just making their own albums, manufacturing. You know, you order the manufacturing yourself and you sell it yourself from, you know, Robert's wife, Michelle, does she manages them and does the merch herself. So we're all there, kind of hand to mouth existence. So it makes it more real and it makes the reward better because it's all your own work then. Yeah, it's that much sweeter for sure. Yeah. 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 Um, What are are some of your favorite memories of touring with uh, Robert and the Blow Monkeys? Um, oh gosh, just being able to see them night after night is a real treat. Uh, they're so much fun. Um, like I say, they're real, real chops. Um, their song said too much, uh, is a, is a live highlight for me because, uh, Crispin, the pump Taylor gets a a solo drum solo on it. It's just so exciting. Mm. Um, such a great dance song to, to, to listen to. I I can't, I just can't stop moving, but they're just such lovely people. Mm. Actually, I say this to you. Um, the bass my dad got for the first Holy Holy tour, uh, I should say we're now called Tony Visconti's Best of Bowie. We're going to morph a little bit. Um, he said, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to sell that, you know, maybe you can help me sell it. And so one night we were talking, I think it's South End, Chris and Mick were talking about basses, you know, nerdy conversation. And I heard Mick say, oh, yeah, I really want one of those short-scale Gibsons. I said, oh, my dad's selling his. He went, oh, really? So he ended up buying that bass. Oh, and wow. He doesn't, I, I'm really, I'm so proud of it because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't yell about it. He doesn't mind me telling people, but um, right. it's gone to a real musician, a really good bass player, and it's not, you know, stock on a wall waiting to be autographed or any of that nonsense. So, right. <clears throat> So on the last tour... Uh, I just standing there watching Mick play play my dad's bass. He's still got the the man who sold the world initials on it. And <laughs> oh wow, is that ever it's really cool. lovely. I'm yeah. so proud. So so Mick came round to our house and uh, I got the bass and I did the deal and everything. So it was lovely having Mick from the Blow Monkeys sitting in your house playing your dad's bass. That was that's quite surreal. <laughs> that, it must have been. It must have been. Yeah. 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 So um, they're just lovely. And then talking saxophones with Neville. And oh, Neville on the last tour gave me a beautiful cigar box guitar that he makes with this fella. And I just, they couldn't have, they couldn't be nicer. They're just so lovely. Yeah. Um, and then they're just great musicians and they're real and they're cool and they're genuine. And so that's, that's the kind of musician I like being around. Yeah. It's just a privilege to tour with people like that. Listen, are there any plans to to come to North America, particularly Canada, with either the Blow Monkeys or Robin or Holy Holy or just you solo oh, with Christian? Well, I think the the most likely thing might be the the, the best of Bowie, but uh, I'm always I'm always looking at opportunities. I think, to be honest, if uh, Robin tours in America, he gets other people to support. Oh. But um, you never know. You never know yeah. <laughs> what happens. We would, yeah, no, I love it there. Yeah. Have you toured up here at all outside of uh, Best of Bowie, Holy Holy? No, not on my own. I can't. I mean, to be honest, it's it's. I can't get the funding or the or the mm. the pull out there. But but we did support in those two tours. Chris and I opened each show, so that was a real um, 
real privilege. And people are still talking, you know, they tell me now, oh, I saw you play in, you know, Lancaster uh, in America, wherever that is. Actually, <laughs> I've forgotten where they all are. Um, Pennsylvania, right. you know, these strange little places. And, and they say, oh, I saw you there. You were brilliant. And so it's just really nice. It's a lovely way to meet people and uh, great memories and a privilege. Yeah. So... Who knows what will happen? <laughs> Listen, I can't thank you enough for spending uh, such a long period of time and being so open and honest. And uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you and, and get to know your life a little bit. Oh, well, thank you very much, Bernard. It's been a real privilege to talk to you. My sincere thanks to Jess for spending a few hours with me on a transatlantic Zoom call and for politely putting up with my seemingly endless questions about her dad, Tony Visconti, and about my hero, David Bowie. I genuinely appreciate that. Until next time, this is Bernard Fraser saying stay safe and please support local independent artists. Music